Well, good evening. Welcome uh, back to um, our School of Theology. And uh, as Neil has been saying, this uh, brings to uh, an end this evening, uh, this year's uh, studies. And we've covered uh, a number of uh, topics, beginning with the doctrine of Scripture and doctrine of God and uh, doctrine of man. And uh, we ended... Uh, with 30, 30 or 31 studies, and we ended in the doctrine of covenant, and we had two sessions uh, in which we uh, looked at that. Now, tonight uh, we're going to have uh, some questions, and uh, every now and then uh, I'll, uh, I'll invite anybody who wants to come to this microphone here and ask a question. Uh, but I've got a lot of questions. Um, some of these actually... Perhaps the majority of these uh, came not from folk who are in this room, I don't think, but uh, folk who live in places like Michigan and elsewhere, and uh, these are folk who listen uh, online uh, during the course of the week, and uh, uh, they've asked uh, some of them some very interesting uh, questions. I won't always identify uh, who it is who's asking the question, um, but this one, uh, this one concerns uh, the doctrine of original sin. And the question goes like this. Uh, concerning the doctrine of original sin, if one rejects the doctrine and doesn't die young, maybe lives for 40 years and chooses not to sin, does he really have a need of salvation? I'm thinking at what point or age does one have to sin in order to be in line with Romans 3? Well, that's the sort of question I've been getting. And um, uh, this is a, an interesting question and uh, one that makes uh, a, a couple of assumptions in the course of the question. Uh, one, of course, is the, the if clause at the beginning of the question, if one rejects the doctrine uh, of original sin. And of course the answer to that is one must not reject the doctrine uh, of original sin because it is a doctrine that's actually taught in the Bible. And I actually don't think that was the intent uh, of the questioner. I think the questioner is asking a question about what is sometimes referred to as the uh, age of accountability. Uh, and this uh, somewhat uh, fictitious uh, phrase uh, has been, has been uh, fairly common uh, currency uh, in churches, uh, particularly, I think, in the last uh, half century or so, uh, that children uh, are reckoned to be uh, innocent, uh, innocent perhaps of, of actual sin, I think only bachelors would draw that conclusion, but, um, but that uh, children, uh, young children, are guilty of, uh, not guilty of actual sin, and uh, uh, there is within that a wholesale rejection of uh, the doctrine of original sin, that someone can be uh, reckoned uh, to be guilty and to be a sinner uh, even before they were born. Uh, 
an assumption that David actually makes when he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, so in, in the womb, uh, in embryo, uh, David reckoned himself to be uh, a sinner uh, because of his union with Adam. Adam as our head and representative uh, agent. Uh, there's going to be another question uh, later on uh, asking uh, the question about children and the death of children, and I'm, I'm going to avoid answering that aspect of things here. Uh, I, just don't, uh, I just don't accept this uh, notion of the age of accountability. I, I, I don't think it has any biblical warrant. Uh, I think the issue of uh, the death of infants is uh, a very important issue. It's a very emotional uh, issue. It's a very personal issue. Uh, and however, however much this issue uh, may affect us in 2013, you have to remember, of course, that prior to, say, uh, the, the early 20th century, um, most infants perhaps died in infancy. Uh, so that when, uh, when folk uh, like the Westminster Divines, say, were putting together the Westminster Confession uh, in the 17th century, uh, the majority of infants uh, actually did not survive. So it was a much more of a pastoral issue then than, than even it would be, uh, it would be today. Uh, John Owen had 11 children and 10 of them died in infancy, and uh, the surviving daughter uh, died in her 20s. Uh, so, so John Calvin has a, had a son uh, that died in infancy, and uh, uh, this, was a, this was a very real problem. Now, we will, we will address the question uh, about the death of infants uh, in a later question, but I'm... Um, uh, I, I just don't accept this notion of the age uh, of accountability. Uh, I think that's a, that's a fairly fictitious um, 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 phrase and uh, not, not one, I think, that is based on any scriptural uh, data. So here's another question. Um, uh, my question, uh, this, this uh, person, it's a he, and uh, he says, uh, my question uh, is concerning the definition of the covenant in Scripture. Uh, most of the time in Reformed theology, it is defined uh, as an agreement uh, or a unilateral monopluric contract. I'm not sure I've ever seen the word monopluric before. Uh, however, many people today seem to define uh, the covenant as a relationship. The two definitions above are very different in meaning. Agreement versus relationship. And since the weight of scriptural usage seems to refer to the covenant as an agreement... Uh, multiple parties, sanctions, conditions. My question is twofold. So the first question is, can a covenant rightly be defined as a relationship if it is at the same time an agreement? Well, I think the answer to the question is, of course, 
Uh, yes, um, a marriage is a covenant, uh, and it is both an agreement uh, and a relationship. Uh, you make vows, uh, you make promises, um, there, is a, there is a contractual nature to the covenant that you make, but it is also a relationship, uh, a relationship between two people. So, so I don't see those two things in and of themselves as suggesting uh, that the two things are mutually um, exclusive. Then the question gets a little more uh, technical, and it says, uh, if it is allowed to be defined as a relationship, how do Reformed Christians counter the doctrine of genealogical or baptismal regeneration? For example, since the children of believing parents are in covenant with God, signified by circumcision and the reference to Genesis 17, and later baptism, then they would by necessity be in relationship with God, assuming covenant equals relationship. This would make all members of the covenant in the same relationship with God. Uh, no, uh, but, but uh, however, we know elsewhere from Scripture that being part of God's covenant people, Jews uh, in the Old Testament, church in the New Testament, does not guarantee salvation. Well, the, the question is rather complicated, but, but the gist of the, of the question is, uh, what does it mean to be in covenant? And what did it mean for a, a, a Jew in the Old Testament to be in covenant? What does it mean for um, uh, someone to be in covenant relationship with God in the New Testament? Uh, we have, uh, we have uh, adults and teenagers and children who are in covenant with God. They are children uh, of believing parents, or at least one of their parents is a believer, uh, and on that basis, they uh, are regarded as being in covenant with God. Uh, we baptize them. Uh, we, we give them the sign and seal of the covenant uh, of baptism. But uh, we do not infer from that that everyone who is baptized in First Presbyterian Church is a regenerate Christian. Uh, just because they're baptized as an infant doesn't mean to say that they don't need to be converted. They don't need to be regenerated. Uh, they don't need the gospel to be preached to them. They don't need to exercise faith for themselves. They don't need to repent of sin for themselves. So it's, it is more than possible uh, to be in covenant uh, with God, to be in a covenant relationship with God, but not to be actually regenerate. Um, I view, uh, I view baptism as uh, a sign and seal, uh, not of faith, but a sign and seal to faith. It says this child needs to believe. This child needs to embrace the gospel. Uh, this gospel is being offered to this child. This child is going to be surrounded by the gospel, by parents who believe the gospel, by brothers and sisters in the church, who believe the gospel, they're going to be raised with prayer and, and, and the word read and proclaimed uh, that's coming out of their ears. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say that these children don't need themselves to be um, converted. So yes, you can be in a, in a relationship with God, a covenantal relationship with God, 
but not necessarily in a saving relationship with uh, God. And Nicodemus in uh, John chapter 3, a Bible teacher in covenant with God, uh, having received the sign and seal of the covenant of grace in circumcision, uh, but still, still needed to hear Jesus say to him, you must be born again. Uh, you can be in covenant with God. You can have an external, if you want to put it that way, you can have this, this relationship with God externally, but still not have, uh, be circumcised in the heart, as it were. Well, I see, I see an empty microphone. Just, just uh, anyone got a question they want to ask? If I don't see anybody walking up to the microphone... I'll just continue because I have lots of, uh, lots of interesting questions here. Here's one. Um, uh, if people say evolution is true, uh, why are there still monkeys? Uh, if evolution was true, wouldn't monkeys have all evolved by now? Um, <laughs> uh, let, let me ad- approach this uh, in, in a different way, perhaps. Um, I, I would distinguish between, between macro and micro uh, evolution. Um, Macroevolution, as I understand it, uh, suggests that all of life uh, has evolved from a single uh, cell. Uh, That cell having been, having come about from uh, some, some, some slime. Um, So that cell would contain uh, amino acids and uh, RNA and DNA and and it just just happens, it just comes into being. And uh, all of life, uh, from from, uh, its uh, smallest forms to its most complex forms, all of life has evolved uh, from it. That, I think, is... um, unmitigated piffle. Um, It uh, it, it has all kinds of problems uh, associated with it uh, that are scientific, that are philosophical, that are theological and biblical. Um, And certainly uh, anyone who believes the Bible to be the word of God cannot accept that form uh, of, uh, of evolution. Um, where man would be viewed as uh, um, a, a, a chance event. Um, the, the Bible, I think, tells us very clearly that man is purposefully created. Uh, created uh, to image uh, his uh, creator uh, and is not uh, the product of uh, some cosmic um, accident. 
actually based on that sort of view of evolution, and it's, it's the one that you widely hear in, in the sort of public, crass sort of media, uh, and, and one that, that, that many scientists would, would, not, uh, would not adhere to. Um, I, I just regard that view as, as, as nonsense. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, and I, and I fully expect that view uh, to, be, to be dislodged, uh, even by the, by the unbelieving scientific uh, community. Um, Christians, I think, cannot believe that man is the product of some cosmic uh, accident. Um, and so there are, I think, rational and, and logical and uh, theological uh, problems uh, associated uh, with it. Now, um, on a micro level, uh, that, uh, that changes take place uh, within uh, species, uh, adaptations to... Um, uh, various uh, changes in in uh, the cosmos or the or the environment in which they live. Uh, I, I have no particular uh, theological problems with that, uh, nor am I uh, educated enough to address it from any sort of scientific uh, point of view. Uh, the question said: If people say evolution is true, why are there still m monkeys? Um, I, I think that even from within, even if one were to assume um, evolution from monkeys, the, the question is too, it's too vague and too general a question. Uh, that, they, that, that there are there are numerous types of of creatures that we call monkeys and apes and chimpanzees and 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 so on and uh, and even even if one were to accept the view of evolution, uh, it is perfectly conceivable um, that that one of those species could evolve and others not. So I, I don't think the question uh, is is a legitimate question. I, I think the question. Uh, as to whether Christians can hold to a macroevolution view, however, uh, I just think that's an important, uh, an important question. Reverend Thomas. Yes. I'm Jim Edwards, and can you all hear me? I have to deal with idiots that believe evolution. I like what, go to the first part of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, omnipotent God created heaven and earth. He didn't create Adam and Steve. He didn't create uh, Bonzo and whatever. We didn't come from monkeys. We came from clay in the form of Adam. And Adam... God put to sleep and, and produced Eve. And if anybody hands you that pile of biomass, is what my father would call it, on the farm they had a different word for it. It makes great fertilizer. They're just trying to cover their own sin. They don't want to face facts. 
that God created this. And science is going to prove it, especially with DNA. We have a different number of chromosomes than monkeys. And it's just a pile of biomass. So I want to encourage all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. I know you have to deal with it a lot, uh, Al. And he really boils down to it's a lot easier to believe the Bible than it is to believe some Ph.D. And that stands for piled high and deep or poor human decision is another term I call it. I know, Al, you are one. But a post hole digger? Yeah. And you dig great post holes down in Allendale, too. And I can go that far. And there is, within microevolution, uh, there is a great variance within given species. And there's a, you can look at people from the pygmies to the Zulus, from our, our fellow believers in Africa who are darker than dark, and for people like me who can go out on a full moon, there's a great variance in, in, within a given species. You look at the Finches argument. I, I need to sort of press you now to, to actually ask a question. Um, somewhere remotely in all of this, I, I need a question. Um, the question is, do we have faith in the Bible? And, and that I'll leave it that. And I, I have to fight it every day. And I just wanted to, to bring up an amen for you on that. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I think it is important. Um, Bible-believing, inerrancy-believing Christians uh, disagree on uh, some, some of the modalities of creation. Um, they disagree on whether the Bible uh, insists on uh, an earth that's, say, 10,000 years old or an earth that's much older than that. Um, I, I think there are lines in the sand over which we cannot pass. And uh, the distinct creation of Adam uh, from the dust of the ground is, is, a, is a line in the sand. I think that, uh, I think that the uh, creation account... Uh, is, is very clear uh, on the specific creation of Adam um, as an image bearer of God, and not just Adam, but, but Eve uh, from Adam. And I think those are, those are sort of lines in the sand. Uh, there, are, there are, I think we need to be tolerant and, 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 and kind and patient uh, with our fellow uh, Bible-believing Christians who, who may have uh, differences of opinion on, on certain of these issues. Um, but uh, the, the line in the sand, I think, for me, is the special creation uh, of, uh, of Adam. Okay, here's a question, um, and it comes... I'm not sure this is a real name. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, if uh, Wagner was a theologian... Uh, would he be Origen, Civitas, or Bart? Well, actually, uh, Wagner was a theologian. Uh, he, was, uh, he was highly enamored uh, of uh, Nietzsche, 
uh, and Schopenhauer, and I, I think those were two enormous influences on his thinking. Uh, Nietzsche, of course, is, is the philosopher of the 19th century from which we get uh, Superman, Ubermensch, and uh, um, it, it feeds, of course, into Nazism and the early 20th century and uh, the, uh, the elite uh, race and so on. Uh, and, and Wagner is certainly in that. Uh, what that actually raises is a, is a far more interesting question. Uh, and, and that is, uh, can you admire the work of somebody like uh, Wagner, who is often, although, although history has been unkind to him, in some ways, but, but he certainly was a man of his time in, the 19th, in 19th century Germany, uh, who was a, a racist, uh, uh, an anti-Semitic racist uh, to the core. Uh, can one still admire his, uh, his art? Can you admire his music uh, knowing that? Um, uh, and and, and that's, that, that, I think, is a much more interesting question, uh, that, uh, that God distributes common grace and artistic gifts to, to individuals, perhaps, in whose company we could not spend a great deal of time uh, because they are so dislikable as, as human beings, but in their artistry. Um, can actually can actually convey, despite themselves, something of the beauty and order and structure of the universe in which they find themselves in, and uh, that that to me is a is an interesting uh, uh, an interesting question dealing with uh, common grace. The question had a kind of rider, a sort of part two. Uh, if Sinclair Ferguson was a musician. Uh, would he be uh, Guido de Arezzo? I think he was the inventor of, of modern notation. He was a kind of medieval uh, person. Uh, James Macmillan, uh, contemporary Scottish uh, composer whose music is somewhat edgy. Uh, and, uh, and Bono, uh, whoever Bono is, uh, <laughs> Irish and U2. I, I was thinking about this. If Sinclair Ferguson was a musician... Uh, who would he be? And um, you know, Sinclair Ferguson has a has a has a kind of sentimental streak to him. Doctor Thomas, did you make this question up yourself? Um, who's in charge of the microphone here? Um, uh, no, I did not. It's here. I, I can give I can give you his name, although I think it's a fictitious name. I rather think that John Rutter is, <laughs> knowing, knowing how much Sinclair Ferguson loves the music of John Rutter, sentimentalist and popularist with a classical strain that he was, I think it sort of sums up Sinclair Ferguson to a T. Um, here's, a, here's another question. Uh, this comes again from outside uh, of our little circle in here, one of our, one of our online listeners. Uh, would you please speak to the recent Boy Scout vote and 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12? Uh, should a church cease sponsoring a Boy Scout troop because of that vote? Actually, that's an interesting question. It reminds us of how countercultural uh, we are becoming, how, how difficult it is more and more for the church to, uh, 
um, uphold and, and believe moral principles and conformity to the Ten Commandments in our culture today. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm certain, uh, I've not spoken to anyone here in the church about it, uh, uh, but I, I, know, I know that this issue uh, certainly will arise. Uh, it'll, it'll have to be addressed at some point. Uh, it is a wholly unacceptable position for the Boy Scouts movement to find themselves in. Um, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there, if there will emerge a year or two from now uh, a, a Christian counterpart to the Boy Scouts movement. I, I perhaps think that that's the direction in which we will have to go. Um, uh, for those who are interested in the question, uh, Rick Phillips addressed it uh, very helpfully uh, online. And if you want to, uh, if you, if you want to know where, um, just uh, just uh, Google Rick Phillips and Boy Scouts, and, and it'll pop up. Yes. My question was in line with this. Um, I'm from Atlanta, and, and some of the churches in Atlanta have support groups. Um, you know for parents of children who've turned to homosexuality. Um, And I was talking to my son-in-law, and my daughter, um, she's on the committee, I don't know, Cub Committee Chairwoman or something for a Cub Scout troop. But um, the question I had, as I was talking to my son-in-law, he said, it was so dumb what the Boy Scouts did because how are you going to say to a scout that you're welcome into our group, you're a homosexual now, and when you get your Eagle Scout, then you can't come back and teach and you can't be a leader. And so that's what the Boy Scout has done. And they probably will, like you say, make another decision. And so my son-in-law was saying to me, he said, you know, Mom, he said, um, when you were young, nobody got divorced. He said, now, our culture, we've all accepted divorce. He said, is that what this is going to be? In our culture, you know, another 40 years, and nobody will think anything about homosexuality because the children are being raised with it. Um, and what I was going to say, some of the churches in Atlanta, they do have... Um, support groups for parents, you know, because I'm sure the parents are going through a very grievous time that their children are accepting, you know, going after this lifestyle. Um, And so, you know, some people have talked to me, and it's like, well, what is the difference in this sin, and what's the difference in the other sins in our culture? And so why are you singling out this sin to treat them differently? And um... okay, I think we've got the gist of your of your yeah, question. Just, and yeah, uh, let, me, let me see if sure. I probably come across very legalistic to them. <laughs> uh, I I I think that homosexuality is uh, you know it. it it wasn't. It wasn't a word that anyone would have used when I was growing up. It was. Uh, it was known. Uh, I, I had a family member uh, who was one, but no one ever said it, and, and and it was just one of those things that was a kind of family secret. 
Uh, we're in an entirely different age. I, I think it's an issue that the church uh, will have to address more and more. Uh, and uh, our, our youth uh, department and college department and others will have to address it more and more. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's very clear, though, uh, whilst Scripture does grant divorce uh, on the basis of uh, infidelity, of adultery, or, or uh, of uh, desertion, uh, and, and those are two acceptable uh, reasons for divorce uh, within, within our confessional standards uh, in its understanding of what Scripture teaches about divorce. Uh, the practice of homosexuality is, is never acceptable in the Bible. Uh, I, think we, I think we have to uh, come to terms with the fact that some are born eunuchs, I think. And I think that, that, that is an issue. I think some people wrestle uh, with homosexual uh, desires all of their lives and uh, I think we have to help and enable them to, uh, to um, mortify this desire uh, and I think we, we need to do that sensibly and, and, uh, and lovingly uh, but I think we also have to be forthright uh, about the practice of homosexuality and the, the rise of uh, uh, the accessibility of it in the internet and so on only, only makes it mo- um, much more of an issue for us. But I think the church has to be, has to be resolute here on, on uh, the, the ethical standard which scripture teaches with regard to the practice um, of homosexuality. Now I'm going to move on to another question. Uh, and this question uh, is... Um, Uh, The question is, uh, what is the difference between a besetting sin that a true Christian struggles with and an addiction to something sinful that may indicate a false conversion as indicated by 1 John 3.8? And 1 John 3.8 says um, that whoever, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Uh, that's, the, that's the reference here. There seems, there seems to be not much of a difference between the two, right, a besetting sin and what he calls an addiction uh, to sin. Is it, is it ultimately possible for a true believer to be addicted to sinful things, or does First John teach otherwise? Well, I, you know, I, I read this question many times, and I, I, I have a notion that the term addiction in this question is, uh, you know, it has, a, it has acquired something of a status, uh, particularly, I think, in counseling uh, today, um, that you call a sin an addiction, and it therefore, it therefore perhaps implies that it's it's something other than sin. It is a. It is a. It is a uh, almost almost something that's one step removed from personal responsibility. And I think I think uh, there are those uh, who would argue that addictions are uh, almost like diseases, uh, and therefore uh, and therefore one one is almost um, removed from a sense of accountability. Now, my understanding of sin in the Bible is, in fact, addictive. 
Uh, I think that the, the, the Reformation and the Puritan movement's understanding of, uh, of holiness, of sanctification, of dealing with sin, was actually entirely in line with a medieval understanding of sin and, and sanctification at that, at that point. Namely, that, that sanctification consists in putting, uh, in, in stopping sinful habits, right? killing, destroying, sinful habits and and creating godly habits the the idea of a of a of a of a learned behavior i think is is in fact something something entirely in line with uh, what the bible teaches about sanctification um so i am I'm, I'm not prepared to make a a distinction here between a besetting sin and uh, and an addiction uh, somebody who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Um, I, I, think, I think that the whole point of a besetting sin is it should scare the living daylights out of you. You know, if you have a besetting sin and, and you are not wrestling with that sin, uh, that, is a, that is a very, very, very dangerous state to be in. And yes, it... It may be, it it may be, that the real reason is you're of the devil, and that you're not regenerate. Now, how can I know that I'm not of the devil? How can I know that I'm that I am actually regenerate? And the an- the answer to that will will only lie to the extent to which I'm trying actually to deal with that sin. I'm actually trying to repent of that sin. I'm turning away from that sin. I'm trying to mortify that sin. Right? So it's what Paul says in Romans 8:13 uh, that if he by the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, I'm quoting the King James. Uh, if he by the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, uh, you will live. But if you don't, you will die. Uh, so the evidence of a regenerate heart, the evidence of grace, if you like, is dealing with besetting sins. Uh, and the moment, the moment that I uh, that I'm that I'm not concerned about besetting sin um, is 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 a very scary um, moment indeed. Uh, yes, a question and not a statement. I do have a question, Doctor. Okay. Um, in your response to the question about evolution, you made a point about being tolerant. Um, and then, no matter what the sin is in society with all the issues that we're dealing with, what are some practical examples of being tolerant and loving to non-Christians and to society while both as a church and individually standing up for biblical truth um, because we know that the news of the gospel in its essential is offensive um, to those who don't believe it. Right. And how do we do that individually and as a church without um, closing the door and um, making outcasts of those who reject the news of the gospel? Good question. I, I think that the Bible distinguishes between things that are firstly and things that are secondly. 
And thirdly, and fourthly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and so on. There are things that are of first importance. There are things that are absolutely fundamental and crucial, over which there can be no compromise. uh, the, con- the, the contrary view would be wholly intolerable. Um, but there are things that are secondary. Y- you can be a Christian and a Baptist. Uh, uh, we, may, we may well have some in this room this evening who are regenerate Christians who love the Bible, believe it to be the inerrant word of God, They love Jesus with all of their hearts. They love the Reformed faith. They love the expressions of the Reformed faith in the Westminster Confession or perhaps the 1689 Baptist Confession. Um, But we are not on the same page on on baptism, on the mode of baptism and perhaps the recipients of baptism. Do I I cut fellowship? Do I I unchurch that person? No, No, of course not. Absolutely not. No way. Uh, so um, th- there, are, there are levels for the sake of, of good order. Uh, the church has to have certain standards. Um, but there are things that are first of all and there are things that are second of all. And there are things that are third and fourth of all. Uh, I, I said, uh, I said um, we need to be patient and forgiving uh, on certain things. Uh, certain things about which there's room for differences of opinion. Um, you know, the age of the earth. How, how long has the earth been here? Is it uh, 10,000 years? Is it uh, 40,000 years? Is it 100,000 years? Is it, uh, is it more than that? And there may be some room for, for, for a difference of opinion on, on that issue. That's still within uh, a proper um, um, uh, way of understanding uh, how the Bible uh, should be interpreted and, and, and what it teaches. Um, But over the creation of Adam, out of the dust of the ground, a special creation of Adam, uh, an an image bearer of God, um, that's a line. I I can't cross that line. Um, Quick question? It's a very quick question, I think. Um, There's a new book out about guardian angels. Is there any biblical evidence for individual guardian angels? No. Uh, I believe that I believe that it's possible, um, but I, I, there is no biblical evidence of a personal guardian uh, angel. Um, they are, however, ministering spirits uh, sent to uh, to help us. Um, I, I um, no. Uh, let, me, uh, let me go on to the next question. Uh, here's, here's a question. Uh, Abram, Moses, and David's covenants are based on what we do. Why did you say they are part of the covenant of grace? A very interesting question. Fascinating question uh, because of the assumptions that the question is actually making. Uh, because the, the question assumes that where the word grace appears, there can be no 
such concept as obedience and doing. Now think about it for a minute. Um, let's, let's assume that the covenant of grace belongs, as the question seems to imply, the covenant of grace simply belongs to the, to the New Testament, say. So is there, is there in the New Testament a category of ought? You, you are obligated to do something as a Christian. Is there, is there any circumstance any time, anywhere in which you must do this or not do that. Uh, a, a category of obligation, a category of ought. Because if there is, the, the question seems to assume there can be no grace. Um, our, our doing, uh, our obligations, uh, our, uh, our fulfilling of the ought is always in response to grace that was true with Abraham it was true with Moses it was true with David Um, the the the, uh, revelation of God's uh, pattern of life in the Ten Commandments was as a result of God having already entered into a redemptive relationship with Moses. He had, he had already come to Moses and revealed his special name to Moses, delivered them out of Egypt and bondage, an act of uh, exodus uh, redemption. And, and the pattern of life, the Ten Commandments, was an expression of life lived in response to grace that God had revealed to Moses. Uh, so the, the, question, uh, the question seems to imply um, that, the, that, the, that the presence of, uh, of doing something uh, is somehow or other in violation uh, to the principle of uh, grace. Thank you. Uh, I am doing a study, uh, I'm looking at things... Uh, references to creation that go through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the, the doctrine or the, the concept of, of ex nihilo, out of nothing, every time I try to think of nothing, I always think of something. And I'm wondering, what does that really mean, uh, out of nothing? I mean, I can picture a universe with no stars or planets or rocks, but I still think of space, and that's something. So... I think it means that you're a finite human being. That's what it means. And uh, imagining nothing is actually something that's beyond our ability to do. Just as imagining everything is beyond our ability. It is a, it is a God thing. Um, good question, though. Uh, did Dr. Thomas enjoy Star Trek Into Darkness? Uh, the answer is yes very much Um, it was my one movie for this year I think Uh, uh, more seriously if you wish how should a Christian navigate secular entertainment that's a that's a good question it's a very interesting question Uh, let let me try and answer that along several lines of thought here the most important statement in the Westminster Confession is this 
God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. It's a vital statement in the Westminster Confession. Uh, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. Now, Americans of all people should love that statement. It is the principle on which this country was founded. It's why the Puritans left to come here in the first place. Uh, So there are two principles uh, enumerated in that statement. One one is um, Christian liberty. Um, the, The other is a more nuanced liberty of conscience. Uh, it is, it is um, you know, what God has not specifically prohibited in Scripture. It, it's not my, it, it is not within my remit to, um, to condemn. Uh, Paul addresses this issue in two places, uh, Romans 14 and uh, 1 Corinthians 8. In 1 Corinthians 8, he's dealing with uh, meat that's been offered to idols. In Romans 14, it's a little more difficult to know exactly what the background is. But, so let's, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You know, you're back in the first century, and uh, you're a Christian. Uh, you, you, you've embraced the gospel. Uh, you've left uh, Judaism. Uh, you, you've abandoned uh, kosher uh, laws. Uh, so you're eating pork and bacon and, uh, and uh, shrimp and uh, all of these were, were unclean foods and, uh, um, and you're, you're making your way home uh, one evening and it's not, it's not the issue now of pork, it's the issue of uh, what about, uh, what about a, a piece of, uh, of chicken or roast beef uh, and you're passing by uh, the butcher's on the way home and it's late and the butcher's selling meat he's selling it at half price, no for you a third of the price look, for you because I love you and you're special I'm going to offer you this piece of beef at 10% of what, uh, of what it's worth because it's going to be off by tomorrow because there's no fridge uh, it's going to be rancid in the morning so you, he needs to sell it only only you know that that piece of meat was offered in some pagan, in some pagan temple somewhere uh, during the course of the day and uh, it was offered as a sacrifice to, to God and uh, uh, do you buy that piece of meat? Well ask no questions for conscience sake beef is beef and 10% that's a good price and, and Lancashire hot pot or whatever it is Uh, that you're going to serve up that evening for your evening meal, ask no questions for conscience sake. It's beef. That's all it is. It might have been waved to some some idol, but uh, it's it's only beef. Um, You know, there's the weaker brother. Um... You know, sometimes the weaker brother needs to be educated. Uh, sometimes the weaker brother can, can sort of lord it over the entire uh, group of people. Right? So there's a principle there. Um, 
It's like, uh, it's like um, you know, alcohol. Um, does the Bible prohibit the use of alcohol? No. Right? You cannot, you cannot exegete that from the scriptures. There's, there's no way that you can exegete from the scriptures that, that the, the partaking of alcohol is in and of itself a sin, a, a violation of the commandment of God. But there are, there are considerations uh, of uh, the weaker brother, those who, have, uh, those who suffer from uh, alcoholism. It's in my family, so I, I'm, I'm, I don't need lectures on it. I'm, I'm, I know all about it. Um, and uh, what is the Christian's view of uh, secular entertainment? I think, um, I think Christian liberty, uh, Christian ethical liberty. Uh, so uh, for me, that means uh, movies uh, that are X-rated, uh, that have explicit sexual scenes, uh, I, I, I don't go and see them. I, I have no business watching them. Um, I, I wouldn't invite uh, a friend to go to, go to them. I, um, I think my view is uh, there's, uh, there's wholesome entertainment. Uh, uh, and I think my philosophy is, uh, would I be embarrassed if I brought my wife to see this movie? And if I am, I don't go and see it. Uh, I think the principle of, of, of Philippians 4.8, you know, whatsoever is just or pure or lovely or commendable or if there is any excellence, anything worthy of uh, praise, uh, think on these, uh, on these things. Uh, so that's my, that's my sort of general approach to um, uh, secular entertainment. If your question is really, really short, my time is over. Okay. So um, there's... So, on the unforgivable sin, if someone commits the unforgivable sin, does that mean that they can't become a Christian because it's called the unforgivable sin? And it's and if someone commits the unforgivable sin and wants to seek forgiveness, how can they become a Christian? That's a great question. It's a very serious, solemn question. It deserves an hour to answer it. My view increasingly is there's only one sin ultimately that is unforgivable, and that is unbelief. If you do not believe, you cannot be forgiven. If you don't believe the gospel, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, prophet, priest, and king, there is no forgiveness. Outside of the gospel, there is no forgiveness. Um, there's no forgiveness uh, ever. Uh, so I don't believe in post-mortem evangelism. So if you die in unbelief, uh, there, is no, there is no forgiveness. And, and that is the unforgivable sin. Now, th- there, were, there was a time uh, when uh, in the history of the church, some thought the unforgivable sin was a specific sin. Um, Hebrews chapter six: You've sinned with a with a with a with a high hand. You you deliberately uh, reject uh, 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 a movement of the Holy Spirit towards you in some uh, way. Uh, I, I think the unforgivable sin is uh, is unbelief. And, and I have to finish there because my time is over. Actually, we've only covered like a third of these questions. There were, there were some really interesting questions, but maybe some other time. Let's, uh, let's pray. 
Father, we, uh, we are amazed as to how much there is for us to know, how much there is for us to understand of what you've revealed to us in Scripture and providence and creation and general revelation. And we are like, we are like small children trying to put all these things together. Uh, in the presence of your majesty and, uh, and greatness. We thank you for a guide for the scriptures that are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray tonight as we think about these things that uh, we might be servants, humble, submissive to what you have shown us in scripture in an unbelieving age and in a world that is increasingly more hostile to our worldview. And as we, as we become more and more counter-cultural in our views and uh, dispositions, uh, we pray for the help of your spirit and that we might shine as bright lights in a dark place. So grant your blessing, uh, we pray, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.